This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Begin reading here in Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And they sailed, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us now just to continue our time of worship. And that we would be praising you as we look to your word. Worshiping you as you reveal yourself to us through your word. And Lord, we also know that often you reveal yourself to us through difficulty and affliction, through storms. And so we pray that you would do that now in the lives of the many in this room who are going through difficulty who are sailing through troubled waters. Would you show them yourself, we pray. Lord, would you point all of our hearts and our eyes to you. Lord, we pray that we would rest in you. We pray that we would worship you. We pray that we would find hope in you for all of life and even in death. So we ask for your help now. Lord, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ, our hope in life and death. I'm so glad to be a part of a church that sings songs like that, that um, are such a blessing. Those are the kind of songs that we want to teach our children. You saw a note this week about children's choir happening, and those are the kind of songs that we want to disciple our children with. If you're like me, once you learn a song and you hear it, you sing along with it, you can just breeze through it without really letting the lyrics land on you. But I just want to draw your attention back to some of the things that we have just confessed together to God and to one another through that particular song. We confessed that Christ alone is our hope. That He is our only confidence. Jesus Christ. That He holds our days within His hand. That He holds our life. All of our life He holds within His hand. And then we sang, nothing comes apart from His command. Nothing in our life happens apart from His command. 
That's staggering. We confess that the truth of God's goodness is what actually calms a troubled soul. That God is good. That calms a troubled soul. That he holds our faith. He holds our faith when fears arise. He stands above all of our stormy trials. That the same waves that rock and afflict us take us home to the shores of Jesus Christ. Even unto the grave we will sing that he will keep us to the end until we meet him and feast in endless joy. Christ alone, our hope in life and death. So friends, lyrics like that don't just come out of the sky. They, they come from being steeped in the Bible. They come from staring at the truth, at Jesus himself, which is what we're seeking to do in our study through Luke's gospel is to stare at Jesus and to look to him these past months. In a way, what Luke has been doing is a bit of show and tell as we've gone through this, these sections. We've been focused on a section of him telling, of Jesus' teaching. From the Sermon on the Plain to his words to the followers of John the Baptist to the, the way he addresses a proud Pharisee at dinner, and then a parable about soils and a lamp. Jesus teaching. He's been, he's been teaching. And what now Luke is going to do is transition to an emphasis on events that show, that display who Jesus is. In the kind of this section, beginning in verse 22, all the way through chapter 9, verse 17, he's going to be showing us Jesus. He's going to be showing us Jesus who has power and authority over nature, which we see in our passage today. We'll see next week, or Lord willing, over disease and death, over demons. He even has power to provide over provision as he's going to feed the 5,000. So in any threat that you could imagine, any, any danger that you could think of that would come to destroy you, fear, starvation, disease, danger, the devil and demons, worry, isolation, even death. Luke is saying Jesus overcomes those things. Jesus is our hope in life, in death. That is Luke's great purpose, is to show us who Jesus is, to give us confident assurance in who he is. And so I want to I encourage you as we come to this passage that you would imagine that you are, in fact, hearing it for the first time. For some of you, this may be the first time that you've heard this section, this account. But if you've heard it several times and it's familiar, let me just encourage you to be intentional, maybe even to say a, a quiet prayer to yourself that, that you would ask the Lord to show you fresh realities from looking at this passage that may be familiar to you. That you would believe that listening today to God's Word is going to be more than just a transfer of facts, things that I didn't know before, and now I know more things. But that this text exists in this moment in my life for a reason. You've heard the, that saying that you can never step into the same river twice. Well, I think it's very similar to the way that we come to God's Word. We can never read God's Word the same way twice. There's always more 
in the Bible than we ever thought. There's always more. And there's always the divine hand of providence that is behind our life and guiding us in how and when we approach the Bible. And each time he meets us over his word. And so I want to encourage you to ask for a heart like John Newton asked for in his hymn, I ask the Lord that I might grow. I want to encourage you to ask the Lord that you might grow. He says he starts it this way. He says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. What a great prayer. I pray he would answer that prayer for each of us this morning. There's two main questions in our passage that I want to use as an outline for the sermon this morning. Two main questions, and they're both found in verse 25. The first is from Jesus to the disciples when he asked them, where is your faith? So if you're taking notes, that's the first kind of question to ask. Number one, where is your faith? It's a question Luke wants us to grapple with as we observe the disciples in the storm. Where is your faith? The second question is from the disciples to one another, which is basically this. Who is this man? Number two, who is this? And that really, the answer there gets at Luke's main point for writing his gospel, that we would know with certainty the person and work of Jesus Christ. Of course, those questions are connected, aren't they? That we would see him, and when we see him and know him for who he is, we will believe in him. We will have faith in him. So may we seek to grow in faith and love and every grace and seek more earnestly his face as we look to God's word together. First, we need to ask the question, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And I want to begin by just saying a word about storms. And let me just say up front that sometimes preachers are known to over-allegorize things and take uh, narrative portions of the Bible and make them normative for everyday life in a way that can kind of lose the point of the story in the first place. So, for example, I read this week that someone had said, speaking of David and Goliath and that story, the five smooth stones that David had in his pouch to face Goliath represented what David carried in his heart. Faith, trust, courage, obedience, and praise. And whenever we face a kind of giant in our lives, we can carry these five stones with us. And wherever we go and face each giant one stone at a time and receive victory. Well, maybe. Perhaps. You may feel that way when we're thinking about um, this story and, and this great storm and then kind of jumping to thinking about storms in our own lives. So that feels like a stretch to you or if it feels a little bit maybe even cheesy. I just want you to know that the Bible actually does this. The Bible often compares the trials and troubles of our lives to the perils that sailors will face, fishermen will face at sea, to storms. And so I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Psalm 69, verse 1, and then skipping down to verse 14, the psalmist says this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Deliver me from sinking in the mire, for let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the 
flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. And there's obviously a picture there of, of the psalmist being in a storm, but he's also referring to his enemies attacking him, which he sees as like being in a storm. If you read the whole psalm, you'll see that he also deals with affliction and pain as a kind of storm and his own sin, his own folly as a kind of storm and being alienated and being alone and separated from from all others, a kind of storm, being in the deep waters, having the flood sweep over him. Psalm 42 is another example. My soul is cast down within me. He's discouraged. He's maybe even depressed. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, at all your, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So again, he just describes this dark season in his life as a storm. So these storms show up as trials and tribulation in our lives. So I think we're on solid footing by making application to our lives from this story in that way. But we don't want to lose sight of this particular storm, its purpose in Luke's gospel. Jesus and his disciples are crossing the lake there in verse 22, which is a reference to the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is more like a lake, but it can act like a sea uh, in a time of a storm because of its topography, because of the, the way the land is situated around it. It's, it's some 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by hills. So it's like in the, it's at the bottom of this bowl. And so cool air can come down from the hills, and then it meets this warm air that's over the water, and it creates these storms that happen abruptly very quickly and very powerfully, so much so that it seems that they are appearing out of nowhere. So really, really fast. But that's another thing that we want to say about storms is that they don't just come out of nowhere. In Scripture, the wind and the waves and the thunder and the lightning, they are all under God's sovereign good control. Both the causing and the calming of the storms. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. Who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Psalm 67, 7. He stills the roaring of the seas. The roaring of their waves. The tumult, the tumult of the peoples. Notice how he connects the roaring of the seas with this tumult of the peoples. Psalm 89.9, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 104, verse 7, speaking of these great waters, at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. So the Bible teaches that God is in control of all nature. He rules the raging of the storm, and He stills the storm. That's good for us to keep in mind as we consider this passage. Look again at verse 22. It was Jesus that said, let us go across to the other side of the lake. This trip 
is Jesus' idea across this body of water that's about to be stormy. He led them. He guided them into a storm in order that he might reveal more of himself. Jesus led them, he guided them into a storm in order that he might reveal more of himself. Friends, God's intentions are always good. He is never the author or approver of evil, ever. But he is sovereign over the storm. He doesn't ever waste a storm in our lives. John Newton knew this. And so he asked the Lord that he might grow, but he did not think that God would grow him through a storm. So literally this hymn, if you follow it, it's like Newton realizing, Lord, I asked to grow, but not like that. He says, I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Don't we all want that? At once, Lord, just fix it. Do it. Instead of this, him is continuing. He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed humbled my heart and laid me low. Friends, aren't we the same way when we we desire and ask God to do a, a quick fix in our life? It hurts now. It hurts now. I'm confused now. Stop the pain. Our natural inclination in a storm is to panic. To anxiously rush, rush to find a solution to save ourselves. And if we're honest, storms can often tempt us to believe that God is not there at all. That he is not aware at all of our situation. Or in this case, he's asleep. Listen to the language of the psalmist. He's writing in the context of storms and testing and trials. Again, we just read these psalms. Psalm 69, Psalm 42. Psalm 42.3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Tears talk, David says. His tears say, Where is your God? Psalm 69, verse 16, David says, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. When you see turn to me, it implies that the Lord has turned away from you. Turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Turn to me. Do these sound like familiar prayers in storms? This is what the disciples do. They've forgotten All they've seen and learned about Jesus up to this point, they assume that because he's asleep in the boat during the storm, that he's either unaware or uninterested in their peril. And they are in peril. They are in danger. 
The water is coming in and it is filling up the boat. I don't mean to in any way downplay that reality. So in any storm that we're faced with, we have to answer this question. Where is your faith? I don't think this question from Jesus is meant to shame the disciples. I think it's meant to teach them. Just like parents, if you were to hear one of your children screaming at night because they're having a bad dream and you go up and talk to them, you just comfort them, telling them it was only a dream. You're not rebuking them for waking you up. Where is your faith is a statement. Their faith was, in the most part, in calm waters, smooth sailing, things going according to plan, safety, calm waters, smooth sailing, things going according to plan, safety. So friend, where is your faith? Maybe there's a storm right now that has come up out of nowhere in your life that is causing you to face that question like you've never faced before. Maybe your life feels like a perpetual storm. We use storm language without even knowing it, without even thinking about it. We often will say, listen to yourself, I feel like I'm drowning with all this work. I'm overwhelmed with school or family. I'm just keeping my head above water in all of these things. And so we, we toil, not just when we work, but we constantly toil in our hearts and our minds with worry, frantically monitoring our email that the, the world might come to an end if we miss one. Our to-do list or our social media account. We can literally lose sleep trying to keep all of these plates in our life spinning. How often do we hear the constant refrain of how tired we all are? How tired we all are. So this kind of toil, it robs us of that sleep. It, it highlights our own faithlessness and our own anxiety. When the, the last thing we do before we go to bed is check that, that thing that sits by our bed. And the, the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning is check that thing that sits by our bed. And Friends, pride is sneaky. It sounds so normal. So don't miss the example that Jesus has for us here, asleep in a storm. Yes, he's tired. But to sleep in a storm says something about your trust. It says something about your faith. Jesus' complete trust is in his heavenly Father. Jesus believed, Psalm 121, verses 3 to 5, that says this, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you, will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. Jesus can sleep like this because he knows that the Father never does. He can sleep like this because he knows that the Father never does. He can rest even when the spray of the waves is coming over into the boat and splashing him in the face. He's not disturbed. In fact, it's interesting, Kent Hughes noticed this, it's not the, the storm that wakes Jesus up, but the unbelief of the disciples. 
That's the only thing that disturbs him. So storms are not fun. They can be and are scary. Those of you who have walked through and been through hurricanes in Houston know this. But they're not out of the blue. They're not random. They're not out of control. Nothing comes to us apart from his command. So storms teach us to trust the one who never sleeps nor slumbers, who is in the boat with us if we're in Christ. J.C. Ryle says it this way. He says, by affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, and makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. So, so that implied statement that Jesus' rhetorical question makes is, put your faith in me. Put your faith in me. All of it. Always trust me. Let your faith find a resting place in me. And, and that begs the question, well, who is me? Right? Who is this? That's the second thing we want to answer from this passage. Number two, who then is this? Now, the reason the disciples ask that question is what, because of what happens in verse 23. Look there, verse 23. And they sailed, as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. That's why they're asking that question. And I want you to notice right here a subtle pointer to the theme that we have been unpacking over the last few weeks in Luke, this theme of obedience and hearing. That's what we've been talking about, really, hasn't, hasn't it? Obedience and hearing. Water, waves, wind, clouds, those are not human things. They, they don't think. They don't have ears. They don't make decisions. And yet, notice the language that Luke, that Luke uses here. He rebuked the wind. And the winds and water obey him. That's the, the theme. To hear is to obey. Deaf, unthinking creation hears and obeys. And I think the implication is better than we do. There's no delay. There's no, oh, I'll think about that, Mom. Let me get to that later. There's an immediate calm. And I think this says something to us about the nature of human rebellion. Everything in the universe, when given a command by Almighty God, obeys. The tides are told to go this far and no further, and they obey. The stars and the planets have their place in orbits, and they never deviate. The animals, the trees, the rivers, the lakes, the winds, the woods, all in their place. But one creature hears the command of Almighty God and responds with no. No. I have a better idea. I have a better plan. 
Friend, that's us. That's humanity. That's you and me. The wind and waves shame us because they reveal our sin against our Creator. Even the wind and waves obey. That's why this man is in a boat with sinners. We need Jesus. He has come to save them from much more than a squall on a lake, but a powerful, devastating, never-ending storm. A storm of God's wrath. That's the way Jeremiah describes it. Jeremiah 23, 19. He says, Behold, the storm of the Lord, the storm of Yahweh, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. So the disciples speak better than they know when they cry out, Master, Master, we are perishing. They are perishing. They will perish apart from His intervention. And so will every other person on the planet. Because we've earned the storm of God, the wrath of God because of our rebellion against Him. The wages of sin are death. Death reminds us that sin is Serious Physical death is a mere preview of the eternal death that awaits all who will reject Jesus. And the storm of God's wrath is unending. Unending. Your only hope is sitting in that boat with Jesus Christ. Here Luke just gives us, I think, a beautiful picture of who Jesus is and why He is our only hope in life and death. If you walk away with one thing today, I pray that would be it. That you would know that Jesus is your only hope in life and death. And that you would turn from your sin, your rebellion against your creator, and put your faith and trust in Jesus. If you have questions about what that looks like, what that means, what it means. That's what it means to be a Christian. To know and follow Jesus. If you have questions about that, I'd love to speak with you. Grab somebody that invited you or that's near you on your role. They they would love to talk to you about what that means. But Luke wants us to look look at this and see Jesus as our only hope. First, because he is in this passage fully man. He's a real man. So Mark's gospel connects this trip across the lake with a full day of ministry that Jesus has is involved in, of of healing and teaching. When he's doing all these parables, same day, Mark connects it with this trip across the sea. So he gets in the boat, Mark says, and he lays his head on the pillow that's in the boat for the guy who's not doing the rowing, and he falls asleep. So he's a real man who gets tired, and his body needs to shut down and sleep. So you don't have a gospel if you don't have this part of Jesus, if you don't have a real, human, fully man Jesus. You don't have a Savior unless he's fully man. We must have a human representative who would stand before a holy God in our place, the way that Adam stood before us and sinned, and we are all in him in sin. We need a human representative who would stand before us that in obedience, that we'd be in Him. That we would have a righteousness in Him. He's got to be human. He's got to be the federal head. 
without sin. We have to have a mediator between God and man in order for there to be a a sacrifice that matters. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That just means to make to satisfy God's righteous requirements. The only way that Jesus could do that is if he were fully man. But he also must be fully God. He must be fully God. Only someone who is infinite could bear the full penalty for all the sins of all of his people. We can't get our minds around that. But if you just think about some like human math, If it takes an eternity for one human being to pay for their sins against a holy God, how would one pay for the sins of all those who would turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ unless he is God? Scripture teaches that salvation is from the Lord. Man cannot save humanity. Only God can do this. You have to have a mediator between God and man. He must be both God and man. And so Jesus faces this storm for the disciples. He faces this storm for us. He calms it by absorbing it. He shelters us from God's wrath by taking it upon himself at the cross. He takes all of it. He dies in our place. And three days later, he rises from the grave. Would you just put your faith and trust in the one who died for you and rose to save you from your sins? The only one who could save you from your sins. The disciples are blown away. They see this happen and they respond with fear and awe because they get it. They're confronted with his humanity and his divinity at the same time. The disciples would have known passages like Psalm 107. Listen to me read a section of Psalm 107 and it's going to be like reading Isaiah 53. It's going to be like reading Psalm 22. You think you're in the New Testament. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away. In their evil plight, they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. They were right to call him master. He creates and calms the storm. This is his world. He reigns and rules his world. He made it and sustains it. And listen, that's not just a a phrase that's thrown away 
That helps us understand who he is. He made the world. He sustains the world. Colossians 1.16, For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Made it, sustains it, even when he's asleep. The disciples knew it, and they were afraid, and they marveled. Who is this? He is man, and he is God. He is the Savior. I know we've been in this section that's been really emphasizing obedience for disciples, faithful Hearing, being hearing, being hearers and doers of the word. And that's all good, and we need to be reminded of that. But can I just, I just want to preach the gospel for you right now from this passage. I want, to, I want you to be lifted up in and caught up in the gospel. This is a picture of Jesus saving sinners right here. Jesus saves sinners. If he is in the boat with you, you're good. If you're in Christ by faith, you're safe. It's not your obedience that saves you. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's who's in your boat. Even though the disciples display here a doubting, weak, panicked, shaky faith, they do cry out, don't they, to Jesus to save them. And he does. He saves them. He doesn't say, you're a lost cause. He doesn't say, "Um, you're going to have to have a better faith than that. A stronger faith, a more consistent faith in that than that. Before I'll save you, then I'll calm the storm. No, he steps in between these vulnerable, confused, fearful, faithless men and their destruction and saves them. They fail a test of faith here. Like if you were going to, on a quiz, did they pass? Oh, yeah, they missed it. Jesus doesn't fail them, they panic. Jesus sleeps. You could say he's sleeping in our place. He's trusting in our place where we have failed. He trusts. Fully trusting in in his Father. He he embodies here what God said through Isaiah. Isaiah 43.1 Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Friends, I think the most crucial part of this story is the very first verse in verse 22, when we just read, He got into the boat with the disciples. Once that happens, we know how the story ends. If Jesus is in your boat, the ship will not sink. He will see you through to the end. 
It's better to be with Jesus than to be with Noah and his family on the ark or with Moses and the people of Israel when God rebuked the Red Sea and parted it for them to cross. Better to be with Jesus than with the men on Jonah's ship when they threw him into the water to stop the storm. Jesus calms the storm with a word, not because he was in sin, but to take away our sin. The disciples can sing with all of their heart that Jesus saves to the uttermost. Jesus saves. Christ is our hope in life and death. Or as Paul put it in 2 Timothy 2, 11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If Jesus is in your boat, you will make it home. He will see that you make it home safely through the storms of life and to that blissful golden shore. So when we look at these two questions that we started with, we need to be honest this morning. Where is my faith? Day to day, am I resting in the one who is resting in this boat? Am I, am I trusting him in the midst of life, in the midst of my storm, whether he calms it or he says to me, hold on to me because I'm going to take you through it? Are we trusting him? Newton's great hymn ends with another cry, a familiar cry. It sounds like the disciples in our story, and it sounds like us often. He says this, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ, from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. So are there schemes of earthly joy that the Lord may break through trials and storms? Yes. The kind of joy that lasts 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Yes, he, he'll break those. Those aren't the ones that he wants us to have. He wants us to have the joys that last forever, that are unending joys. Would you meditate on that truth that God's goodness calms a troubled soul? It's God's goodness that we go to when we're troubled. And would you call out to the Lord, no matter where you are, no matter if you're in your fear, if you're in a panic, if you're in the, the state of being overwhelmed, would you call out to your master and king? Call out to the Lord. He's your savior. He's your God. After we get through this section of events that displays Jesus' power, that we're going to keep walking through in the next weeks and months, Lord willing, we get to a point of response. There must be a response. Luke knows that, and it's crescendoing up to that. In chapter 9, Peter's great confession in Luke 9, 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So friend, is that where your faith is? 
Is Christ your hope in life and death? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be our hope in all of these things. Lord, we thank you for the good news that you save sinners. And so, Lord, even if we, if we, if we don't understand all that we need to understand, even if we find ourselves full of fear and anxiety, we pray we would look now to you with faith. That by your grace, you would open our eyes to see you for who you are. That we would be able to, to answer this question. Who is this with a true, honest, God-given answer of my Savior? Jesus, my Savior, my Lord, my King. So Lord, we pray there would be some that call out to you, even now, call out to you for salvation. And then as we go through, Lord, the daily, weekly storms, the perpetual storms, the testing, the pressure, we pray that we would be reminded that you are there with us. You're with us. And even when we're faithless, you're faithful. So we pray that that would be a great anchor for us even as we sing now, even as we come to your table, that we'd be anchored in Christ, in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.